Welcome to Everything Co-op, bringing you information on how cooperatives can help improve your quality of life. This show is being sponsored by the National Co-op Bank, NCB. The NCB is dedicated to strengthening communities nationwide for the delivery of banking and financial services for the nation's cooperatives, their members, and other socially responsible organizations. For more information on the power of community ownership, visit ncb.coop. That's ncb.coop. Now stay tuned for your host, Vernon Oaks. Good morning, everybody. This is Vernon Oaks, and the program is Everything Co-op. Uh, this morning, we have the pleasure of having Dr. Stacy Sutton on with us this morning. Uh, good morning. Good morning. And how are you this morning? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. Thank you. How should are I, you? Should I call you Dr. Sutton or Stacy? Uh, Stacy is fine. Thank you. Great. Stacy, so you're out of University of Illinois in Chicago. What do you do there? Yeah, so I'm an associate professor of urban planning and policy, so that's the department I am in. I'm also, I work with the Social Justice Initiative here, and I guess the third hat that I wear, I co-direct the Solidarity Economy Research Policy and Law Project within the Center for Urban Economic Development. Solidarity Economy and Law Project? It's the Solidarity Economy Research Policy and Law okay. Project. Hey, you need a PhD to be able to say that whole title. Okay. <laughs> so what's an associate professor? Are you tenured? I am. I'm a tenured professor. So yeah, you move you, you move from assistant to associate when you get tenured. And in that it has helped me think about a a more ambitious research agenda, and and but more importantly, I think uh, as an associate professor, I feel that I have more flexibility to do the community work that I'm, I'm deeply committed to. At what point do you become a full professor? Well, it, it, there's not a in academia. There's not a standard in the sense that how long it takes folks to move from assistant to associate is fairly standard. Right? It could be five or seven years in terms of when you go up for tenure, and those who um, earn it then uh, can be an associate professor for the rest of their career, but depending on your contributions to your field, you can then, uh, I guess, apply or uh, go up for a uh, full professor. It's You don't have to, but you, you know, I, I hope to once I finish my book. And what book are you going to finish? Well, so uh, it's called Real Black Utopias. At least that's the beginning. <laughs> it's called Real Black Utopias, Liberatory Ideologies, Infrastructures, and Practices at the Radical Edge of Economy. It's a mouthful, but Real Black Utopias, I think, is... <laughs> well, okay, I think Real Black Utopias. Yeah. Okay, and so throughout history, people have tried to, and I think in the 20s, they tried to create utopias, and they didn't work. Yeah. So what what is your real black utopia? What is that? Yeah. So I'm actually building on some a, a kind of a theoretical frame that um, Eric Olin Wright offered um, in the early 2000s, and he wrote about real utopias. And the reason that his argument is very different than kind of the utopian theory in which you know these are these fantasies. Real utopias are examples of 
practices outside of the conventional kind of capitalism, let's say, outside of a con the conventional logic, but they exist, right? So they're real, you know, and arguably better than what we currently have. They're just not as widespread in that scale. So real black utopias pushes that a little bit further to look at how black communities, how within black communities, how uh, we're creating these you know, kind of alternative economies or these solidarity economies or, you know, these community wealth building spaces that absolutely exist and they have all the elements. They're just not the dominant way we understand economy or even social relationships, right? And, uh, yeah, so I'm looking at examples across the country in which we can point to these things I call real black utopias. Okay, I um, I am excited about this. And you really have some examples of real black utopias? I think so, absolutely. Absolutely. Do you have a good enough framework we can talk about that today? Yes, we can. Okay. <laughs> yes, but before we talk about these real black utopias, how did you get into this work? I mean, did you you grow up and you say at five years old, I want to be a professor and I want to talk about real black utopias? That's yeah, what yeah. I want to yeah. be. Yeah, that's exactly how it happened. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, no, I, not at all. I mean, I, I, I am from New York. I'm from Brooklyn. And I've always been interested in kind of the dynamics in black communities. I've always been interested in community economic development. And that was the language that I had for it as I kind of matured and, and started to understand the relationship between small businesses, you know, black and other minority-owned businesses, and community, and the and neighborhoods, right? So I've always been interested in the, the the form and function of neighborhoods and the role of these small businesses. And over time, and after I did my dissertation, and even my dissertation was very much focused on collective action, the collective action of small business owners, black small business owners. So not. I wasn't as interested in them as individual entrepreneurs, but rather how they came together and worked together to change the neighborhood, I'm focusing on a neighborhood in Brooklyn. And then later, I, I started to think about that slightly differently in terms of thinking about it in terms of cooperation and cooperatives, how the, you know cooperatives are, are formed, their, their principles, their function. And I think it's just really a slight pivot from more conventional community economic development to a kind of an explicit focus on cooperatives and economic democracy and the solidarity economy, which is kind of broader than just cooperatives. So, it, it, you know, so it seems like a logical trajectory for me, uh, to me, but uh, yeah, I didn't, I think I'm still, as many of us, we're still kind of developing because this is somewhat of a it's not a new area by any stretch. People have been working in this for over a century, as Jessica Gordon-Emhart helps us to understand. However, the movement, I think, currently is ascendant. I do believe that you know we're seeing more and more both in community as well as in the academy and advocacy that's really focusing on this. So that's kind of how I got into it. Okay. It, it's extremely interesting how you got into it and the work that you're doing. And you mentioned J Dr. Jessica Gordon-Nimhard. She has been on the show several times, and she's scheduled to be on next week. Yes. She's a, I see her as a mentor. 
Yeah, and she has been for many people. I think many of us here mentor, but yeah. So, Doctor Sutton, do you like what you do? I do. I really do. It's it's super exciting. It's far more. You know, there are moments I think where things may feel burdensome or may feel, uh, you know, you're doing research and it doesn't really congeal or it doesn't. It's not exciting. This work is super exciting because it it you can see the effects of the work in community. And although I am definitely a researcher, I think what's also particularly exciting and hopeful for me is how this work can be applied. And I'm constantly learning from the communities in which I engage, right? The community, the actions, the stuff people are doing on the ground are well ahead of any of the research that's been done. And so that is actually exciting, right? There's so much that can be documented, that can be, you know, um, disseminated and help hopefully exposing this wonderful work on the ground. And I see that as my role, right? So many folks are not familiar with cooperatives or uh, community wealth building, solidarity economy. The people doing the work are busy doing the work, right? And don't have the bandwidth necessarily to fully expose and or, you know, some, it's not just marketing, it's really just increasing public awareness of the, the potential of these initiatives, right? So I, I, I'm trying to contribute to that using research. So this show, Everything Co-op, that's what it's all about. That's why we got started almost 10 years ago now, we're in our 10th year, was to get people to understand because I found that cooperators, those people out there doing the work, are so busy in doing the work and they make tell each other what they're doing but the whole econ- the whole economy the, the 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 US most people don't know what a co-op is so Absolutely. the idea is and that's why I really enjoyed talking to you and Dr. Jessica and Gordon Nimhart and the host of people we've talked to about the work that's going on and so can you tell us some of the cities that you're going to be that you have looked at and going to be looking at at this Sure. I mean, there are a lot of cities, right? And so for me, it's actually narrowing down the scope. And so if I start in the South, there's really Jackson, Mississippi, Atlanta, but then come to DC and uh, New York, Boston is doing some amazing work in Boston, uh, Chicago, Houston, and then likely a city in, in uh, California, perhaps Richmond, California. Those come to mind. Philadelphia, right? And, and I don't know that I can do all of them, but I imagine at least eight or so cities are what I'd like to focus on. And so how are you choosing these cities? What's the criteria? Yeah, I mean, I've, I've engaged with folks in each of those places. And so whether or not they can all... I go in depth in each. That's what I'm kind of. There's, there's. That's a little uncertain. And I'm still doing some more, you know, groundwork. But I'm selecting each of those cities. I've selected because I could identify what I am calling a real black utopia. I could identify black-centered or black-led worker-owned cooperatives. That was the primary criteria. And I use that as a criteria because, as we know, it's challenging to start and sustain cooperatives. 
in isolation. They need support. They need technical assistance. They need non-extractive capital. They need all the things that a business would need, but with the nuance and the specificity and knowledge of co-ops, right? You can't go to your typical SBA, a small business association, and get business support for co-ops because they're not familiar with how, you know, the governance of co-ops. They're not familiar with how they may not be able to lend to co-ops. So people need to understand that, right? So you, you need a, this infrastructure. So I use black, I use worker and cooperatives as a way of saying, well, if they're here and they've been sustainable, there's probably more than that here. There's probably other types of co-ops. There's probably these technical assistance provider, providers, the legal, the finance, the, you know, all of those things that, that constitute this ecosystem. And I'm able to identify a lot of those components in each of the places. And so that's how I selected the place. So you're, you're talking about now an ecosystem and the components of the ecosystem you've talked about. And that's having these different types of co-ops, having technical assistance, training, money and non-extractive money, legal support, advocacy. So you have all of these different things in this community and therefore that creates your black utopia. Listen, we're going to take our first break and want to come back and talk about in more in depth of some of these cities and what you're finding in this black utopia, in this ecosystem and what you expect to find in your research. We'll be right back. Please don't touch that dial. This is WOL News Talk 1450 AM and 95.9 FM. Welcome back, everybody. This is Vernon Oaks, and the program is Everything Cooperative. We have Dr. Stacy Setton on with us today, uh, who wears several hats at the University of Illinois, Chicago. She is an associate professor, and she teaches four classes a year. I would love Dr. Sutton to come and take some of your classes. They sound like they would be extremely exciting. And she is a co-directs the Solidarity Economy Research Policy and Law Project. There was one other thing you do. Ah, yes, I am uh, kind of a director of applied research at the Social Justice Initiative. Okay, I need a doctorate to be able to say everything you do. It sounds <laughs> wonderful. It sounds wonderful. And we were talking about before the break. We were talking about your research and going to different cities that have what you are calling a real black utopia, and at the heart of that real black utopia our worker co-ops and uh, just for everybody out there a worker co-op is a business that's owned and controlled by the employees and owned and control is a big part of it and they operate with the values and principles of cooperation and uh, within this ecosystem that Dr. Sutton talked about before we took a break so can you tell me uh, you, you mentioned several cities have you done any research in any of these cities so far? I have. I have, and I hope to go further. So I mentioned uh, D.C., Chicago, Boston, New York, 
and what else? There's Atlanta. I, I haven't done much in Atlanta thus far, but I, I will. I mean, there really are, I think I identified a total of 12 or 15 cities that have um, elements of what I would call real black utopia, but I, I'm, I'm really going to focus on eight of them, just because it's. I think they're more mature in terms of what they've been able to develop in, in terms of the ecosystem. There are different ways of thinking about each city in terms of how this emerged. You can think about how it emerged, what are the elements that exist, at what scale is it operating, how it's connecting to other places, right? What's the kind of the liberatory potential of the work that they're doing? Um, and, and, and so those are some of the kind of questions that I am asking or at least exploring as I engage with folks. You know, and what, what's the role of the local state or the city? Is the city engaging? Is the city supporting? Um, and I'm not, unlike past research where I started from the perspective of the city, this is starting from the perspective of, uh, you know, the grassroots. How are grassroots organizations um, building this, these, these real black utopias, right? And in some cases, the cities support that, you know, wittingly or unwittingly a bit later, but it's not, in some cases, they're not supporting at all, and that, that's fine, too. So I am looking at that. So when you go into a city and you say you're starting from grassroots, is that one where you go in and talk to the worker co-ops that are already in existence, or do you start with... Uh, who's providing the finances, or who's providing the legal, and go talk to them, or who's providing the training, and go talk to them. How do you, how do you, how do you approach? Yeah, this? I mean, it depends. In each city, it's a little <laughs> different. I typically reach out to the kind of co-op developers that I know in those places, right? Especially if there's an organization that is doing more than co-op development, but they're doing at least co-op development. So, for instance, in in D.C., it might be one D.C. In Jackson, it might be Cooperation Jackson. In Atlanta, it might be the community um, the community movement builders. In Boston, it might be the Boston Ujima Project. Right there, at least there's an organization that, in each of those places, there's more than one that has a focus on kind of black communities and building cooperatives, plus all these other things, plus people's assemblies, plus community land trusts. And it has the support, you know, different support mechanisms that may be local or, or beyond, but they they have linkages to what's understood as necessary. All the things you mentioned, technical assistance providers, the co-op developers, the legal, and so forth, that, that are necessary to, to allow for co-ops and the other kind of solidarity economy practices to both cohere and ideally to, to survive. So I start by reaching, you know, the folks you know, and I, I tend to know those folks most. And then they introduce me to some of the actual co-ops and introduce me to the others, folks doing advocacy and so So these developers, what, what does a co-op developer do? And I'm asking that question mainly for the audience. What does a co-op developer do so that if somebody said, and I've tried to encourage on this program, getting together with four or five of your friends and starting a business. Don't just look for a job, start a business. If you're uh, a home health care worker, uh, instead of necessarily going into an agency, get four other home health care workers and start your business. 
like the largest worker co-op in the U.S., is a 1,500-person member uh, worker co-op in New York. Yep. Are they in Brooklyn, maybe? They are the Bronx. in the Bronx. Yeah, okay. The Bronx, yeah. So what does co-op developers do? That's a really good question. And I think they do a couple of things. And they're different types of co-op developers. But the, what you, you offered is important in terms of you have five people that want to start a business. If you go to a conventional business support services, the Small Business Association, and, and you know that you want to start a co-op, they most likely couldn't help because they don't understand the governance of a co-op. They don't understand the principles of a co-op. Whereas co-op developers are deeply grounded in the co-op principles and they help you think through the various stages of business development, co-op business development. The team, the composition of the team and the skills of the team, the governance Right. These are what these are organizations that have one person, one vote. They're typically fairly flat in terms of co-ops and in terms of power. So that's not how we are trained in the U.S. We're trained in hierarchies and power differentials. Right. So you, it, it's it's even though you have a great business idea, you have to learn how to be cooperative. And so co-op developers can walk, walk you through that process, some co-op developers do training programs, educational programs, um, and they, they put together tools. Some are more kind of more focused on the governance of co-ops. Some are very kind of high touch and really kind of work with their partners, their, the, the folks that are trying to start cooperatives one-on-one. -on -one. And from the very beginning, the ideation where they're just conceptualizing this, all the way through startup and beyond, right? Mm -hmm. um, so there are different models in terms of co-op development, but they're the folks that then also help you think about how are you going to get funding for this, right? There are different funding streams that are not the conventional banks that are less extractive and that might fund, that typically fund cooperatives. So they, they, they really help, you know, they range the gamut of, they run the gamut of, of supports. Uh, that they can offer. When we say co-op developer, it may be within legal. It could be other things as well, though. So you've used this word extractive financing or less extractive, non-extractive financing. Can you define what that is? Ooh, that's a really good question. So in the book that I'm working on, I, I am using this term non-extractive finance. Okay. That term comes from seed comments. Seed Commons is a kind of a, a national set of organizations that are funding cooperatives, and they somewhat coined this term non-extractive, and it's non-extractive capital or non-extractive finance because they're lending money to cooperatives that meet you know, their criteria, but they are not requiring that the cooperatives pay the money back until they're profitable. They're not charging, you know, these high interest rates. They're also offering technical assistance and other supports to ensure that these co-ops can meet their, their targets, right? That is not how a typical bank works. If you're able to get a loan, but if the bank sees you as risky, that means your interest rates will be higher. You typically have to start paying back within 30 or 60 days. 
and it, it can become extractive. You can easily lose your business because you can't meet the payments required, right? You miss in, it's analyzed. You, you um, overstated what you thought the revenue would be. Where the non-extractive approach, they're different. We're still trying to sort out what exactly non-extractive means, right? I'm working with some colleagues, and we're trying to develop a typology of non-extractive finance, right? What does that mean? What does it look like it for different organizations and so forth? But the the, what the way the seed commons um, defines it is this lending practices that are not. They're lending debt, right? So you, you have to pay back, but you don't have to start paying back until you're profitable, and you're paying back, you know, it's a very simple interest rate. Okay. It's not like we, compounded and so We have to take our next break. Uh, this is extremely exciting to me to talk about somebody that is going to loan money, and you pay it back when you make money. You don't pay it back until you make money. All right, that's fantastic. We'll be right back, everybody. Please don't touch that down. Talk 1450 WOLAM, where information is power. Welcome back, everybody. This is Vernon Oaks, and the program is Everything Cooperative. And Dr. Stacy Sutton is our guest um, who has been on the show before. And Stacy, if I recall correctly, your last research was about cooperative cities and those cities that help to promote co-ops and I also recall that Chicago was not one of them and they decided to do something Chicago got on the ball so what has Chicago done now to help co-ops and maybe even be a black utopia you have you listed them <laughs> as one of those cities you will be looking at for black utopia yeah that's a, that's a really good question so yeah when I did the study in 2017-18 Chicago was not considered a cooperative city in the sense that the city had not made any you know, explicit investments or even gestures toward worker-owned cooperatives they, they existed here, absolutely, and people kind of, grassroots organizations were developing them, and there were co-op developers here, but the city government hadn't done it. Since then, the city is doing quite a bit, and we're excited about what's happening. So if we were to redo that study, it surely would be a cooperative city. But I think more importantly, yes, there are definitely kind of real bad black utopias that are emerging here, but more importantly, the city has invested in what we define or what we're calling community wealth building. And we're using that terminology because it's cooperatives plus. Community wealth building encompasses worker-owned cooperatives, housing cooperatives, community land trusts, and uh, community investment vehicles, meaning community members come together and want to purchase a commercial space, for instance, uh, you know, community assets to purchase and, and, and hold, that would be considered a community investment. And so the city has invested uh, $15 million from the federal funds to, to really deepen and strengthen these, these practices by deepening and strengthening the ecosystem that support these practices as well as the startup of more community 
uh, community wealth building initiatives or community wealth building or, um, entities, more co-ops, more land trusts, more CIVs. More, more, more fantastic community wealth building, particularly black community before COVID an average white family had $171,000 of wealth, of net worth. That's, they owned more than they owed by 171000 But the average black family had 17000 10% of wealth. Right. And then that history goes from slavery and whenever we started to creating, whether it's co-ops or uh, Tulsa, Oklahoma, creating community wealth, whites got jealous or envious or just didn't want to see us. Whatever their reason, then they would bomb us, take us, do whatever they could, lynch us to get our land and whatever wealth we were creating. So we didn't have much wealth. So this community wealth building is exciting to me. It is. Can I just add one thing yeah, there? I mean, please. I think all of those examples you gave are extremely important historical examples. I think what Chicago is doing, and that's a bit unique, is defining community wealth as is an approach to economic development that um, promotes local, democratic, and shared ownership and control of, of community assets. Can you right? say that? That means that those are co-ops. Those are not just kind of the small businesses that, that, that um, many black and brown folks start. These, these are co-ops. These are black and brown-led co-ops, uh, housing co-ops, community land trusts, and so forth. So there's a you know, a very explicit attention to those models. And, and that's that's intentional because we believe there's been a lot of resources. Well, there's been some resources allocated over the years to, let's say, Black-owned businesses. But that hasn't led to the community wealth building that we believe could manifest had we done it more collectively, had we done it in the way that W.E.B. Du Bois suggested we do. And we chose to go the route of individual wealth and, um, you know, and capitalism. But if we go the route of, so we're taking a different path at this point. And, um, and Chicago is, you know, $15 million into this path. It's not huge in the scope of, you know, a city's budget, but it's something. <laughs> it's important. And we don't usually get that infusion of, of capital. To, well, it's to huge. It's to huge years. compared to zero. <laughs> okay. Okay. And that's what was there before. So, uh, but I want that definition again. You said democratically controlled shared ownership. Yeah. That was a couple so other things. The, it's a very ex explicit de definition. So the city defines it as community wealth building is an approach to economic development that promotes local, democratic, and shared ownership and control of community assets. That means the businesses, the land, property. All right. So you have to build that ecosystem, that cooperative ecosystem in order to create that local democratically owned shared ownership mm -hmm. and control. Okay. All right. Now I found it interesting when you list your groups of cooperative cities, you had you had Madison, Wisconsin in that first group of cooperative cities, but you're not in your black utopias. That is true. Yeah, because Madison, meaning the, the first, the cooperative cities was not, I was not focusing on race right. or ethnicity, but rather what, what cities are doing. And so I didn't find, 
evidence of like, these real black utopias in Madison. Um, okay. Although the city is supporting co-ops, it doesn't mean that within black communities they're emerging. That's very different than Minneapolis. In the other study, Minneapolis was there. The city was supporting through their, I think it was called like a UTAP program. And there's also evidence of grassroots uh, kind of black-centered worker-owned cooperatives and solidarity economy work. So they are on my list. I don't know if they will be one of the real black utopia cities, but they have evidence of that kind of work. So every city that was that I see as a cooperative city doesn't necessarily uh, doesn't it doesn't necessarily correlate to to the real black utopia spaces. I am so excited about your work and um, wish you had the book out already because I want to read it. I want to find out what you find you out when you, when you do this. Uh, and the last time you were on, uh, when you were talking about going to the South, I knew I would be in the South uh, last summer and I wanted to sort of hook up with you and I still do. I mean, maybe if I could carry your bag or something while you're asking all of the questions so I can just get a like to fly on the wall and get this knowledge that you are that you are gathering it is so exciting it's I'm glad to see that Washington DC is on it um, one DC and there's a DC uh, cooperative uh, stakeholders group here in DC and there's a lot of activity so I just wanted to talk about real quickly the four types of co-ops because you have mentioned them no, you meant two, and that's a worker co-op, which we've already said is only controlled by the employees as a worker co-op, and therefore any business you can think of could be a worker co-op. I heard some people, uh, Stacy, talk about there should be maybe a limit of 500 employees, but I don't get that. Like, we already have that 1,500. I think any business could be a worker co-op, regardless of the number of employees. And then there's the consumer co-op. It's owned and controlled by the persons that uses the products. And you've mentioned housing co-ops. There's also credit unions. There's food co-ops. There is a health clinic in Madison, Wisconsin, that is uh, owned by the patients. It's a consumer co-op. And then the other two are used by farmers in the ag community and different artists are beginning to use them. And that's a purchase co-op uh, that a group of people or companies come together to create a company that buys their products that they need to produce whatever they're producing. Uh, and the other one is a market co-op. And sometimes it's called a producer co-op where a group of farmers or or artists will come together and create this business where to market their products. Uh, farmers like come together and create a Cabot Creamery, Lando Lakes, Ocean Spray, and there's a black group of women in Pittsburgh created uh, artists that created Ujama Ujama Collective, and then there's a Zuni uh, Native Americans, Indigenous people in Zuni, New Mexico, that came together, and in both instances, they have a storefront to sell their products. Uh, and the Zuni folks, they their back room is where they create their jewelry and paintings and so forth. So, any individual could not create this storefront. Any individual artist, they don't have enough, but working together collectively, they can do this. So those are the four types of co-ops, and you're talking about two of them. I don't know where land trust fits in the type. Uh, maybe it's a consumer co-op. The people that are using the land create that. Have you worked with any market or purchasing co-ops 
Have you seen those? Uh, yeah, I, I have. <laughs> and they're not excluded from the, you know, in terms of how I think about co-ops. Absolutely. I think for the city's initiative, they're not the focus, but there are hybrid models, right? There are hybrid models in which they're, um, especially if you think of some some food co-ops that might be hybrid, meaning those yes. who started the food co-op, they might be worker owners, and then the members are member owners, right? Consumer owners. So, but in terms of the purchasing co-ops and then the larger producer co-ops, I haven't really worked with them explicitly. I haven't worked with you know, any of the, the farmers, I mean, those those are in terms of utility companies and agriculture, those are the largest sectors of co-ops in the U.S. They're huge. They're, you know, in areas, in rural areas in which um, these large private entity, utility entities don't find it, you know, there's not a competitive advantage to, to locate there. People have come together and started their own utility, right? And that inform it as a co-op. I think the reason I... Personally, I spend less time in terms of my research and, and really advocating for certain types of co-ops. It's because you can be a producer co-op and still have poor labor practices. So the owner of the co-op, so the, if the co-op is formed, let's say, I don't want to disparage, let's just say an agricultural co-op. It's usually the owner of the small farms that are members of this co-op. They're workers, the ones in the field. They're not members, and they may not have rights. <laughs> yeah, so they, it, it, it's not necessarily one person, one vote in that regard. So, uh, you know, and it doesn't mean every producer co-op operate, operates that way, but often, especially in agriculture, um, we see that. So, yeah, that's not one of the top types of co-ops. So I'll just summarize quickly what I heard you say was, the farm may be a member of a producer co-op, that's the farm owners or so forth, and let's say it's a farm that cow, they create milk, but the people that are out there doing the work of, of the creating the milk, the workers on the farm, they may, I don't know, be getting five bucks an hour, they may be not getting wages, so yeah, I, I get that, I get that, I get that. Okay, so I want to try to hook up with you this summer to go around and carry your bags as you do your research or next year. So we're going to take our final break. This hour goes by real quick when you're having fun, and I'm having fun talking to you. And what I'd like to come back and talk about is the future. You're taking this knowledge. You're getting all of this knowledge of what, is, what has happened, and that's what uh, – Dr. Jessica Gordon-Imhart has looked at the past, and you're looking at what's happening now. What do you see all of this going on to the future? Okay. We'll be right back. Please don't touch that down. News Talk 1450 WOLAM, where information is power. Information is power. And Stacy, I, I said to you, we've been on the air almost 10 years now. October will be 10 years. And National Cooperative Bank has been our supporter, financial and otherwise, our cheerleader, telling us about this whole co-op world as we've learned more. I got into this knowing about housing co-ops, and I've learned so much more. And NCB is um, was created in the 80s to help co-ops and their members 
by providing uh, innovative financial services, particularly to low-income communities. And a lot of these communities that you're talking about, particularly black and brown indigenous people are low-income communities. And so they're always looking for ways of, of helping low-income communities. Uh, have you used them at all, or have you seen their work, NCB, and you, as you've gone around? I, I, ha- I haven't used them, but I have seen their work. I know of them, yeah. Okay. So what I wanted to talk about is the future. So I, as I recall, Chicago was not a co-op city in your first research. Mm-hmm. Uh, and because you were with the University of Illinois Chicago, it seems like, and I think you told me this, that then they decided because they weren't there that they were going to get there, and they started doing things. What do you see happening to cities, both cities and grassroots? How do you, how do you see the future with what you're finding out, and particularly as people understand and know about co-ops and what they can yeah. do? I think I think that's it. I think the awareness right is huge, and and I'm trying to contribute to that. But there are a lot of others that are both doing research, do communications, uh, media you know, and so forth that, that are really exposing folks to this. What I see as the future or what, I, what I'm hoping and what I see in, in, you know, semblances of, that more people understand the potential for and the, the sustainability of worker cooperatives and, and other forms of cooperatives, that workers will start demanding more voice within their workplace. Right, and we're seeing that with the rise of the, the rise of unions again. But that's extremely powerful. So when we talk about democratizing the workplace, what we're really talking about is giving workers more power. Some may convert from a conventional firm to a worker-owned enterprise. That would be ideal, right? But I'm also hopeful with this research that we'll see more progressive municipalities that are willing to invest in these enabling environments, sometimes through capital, other times through uh, kind of policy and legislation that allows for the flourishing and provides support for either technical support, shifts in, in land use regulations, all of the things that can be inhibitors. Of, of starting um, something new and that might be seen as different. So progressive municipalities really could play a role, a bigger role. And then lastly, I would say a greater role and greater attention and greater advocacy around philanthropy and other, um, you know, capital sources, right? Um, the degree to which this work gets promoted and more people are understanding its utility I think more philanthropy or philanthropies would will come on board and offer support, offer capital, and that's extremely important, right? So if we have the resources, more people will also get involved, and I think my role at the university is to continue to bring this into urban planning and policy and other departments, bring this these strategies in as potential so that I'm teaching students that will earn a master's degree and then go out in the world and work in planning departments, work in community development agencies, and they understand the potential of these strategies, right? That, mm-hmm. that then allows the, the, the discourse to be very different, allows the, the, the array of strategies, you know, when people are trying to think about how to start a business, this becomes something that is offered as, a, as an option. 
that to me is where I I, I believe we're going. I, I'm hoping that we're okay. going. And have you seen evidence of that? Yeah, I mean, I think that the model, the Chicago example, is evidence of that, right? Um, it took a really brave insider to heed the 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 call from grassroots groups and others outside saying we, the city Chicago should be supporting this work, and we we had people within the mayor's office for economic and racial justice that heard that call from the Black and Latinx community and it helps to organize this initiative. So the degree to which you actually can reach the right actors, so much is possible. So once they started, you know, um, I think attending to the, the possibilities, we were able to put together an advisory council and really kind of frame this as something unique. We studied examples all over the country and then created the Chicago model. Chicago always does things a little different, so but I'm, I'm proudly so in this, in this case. Uh, yeah, created the Chicago model, this this community wealth building model, which just launched in January officially in terms of you know providing some of the capital to the organization. So we have another 22 months, I guess. 22 months to do what? To see how to to spend down the 15 million dollars to. To invest it, we, you know, we, we organized the capital into three buckets. The first was like $6 million to the ecosystem, technical assistance providers, co-op developers, all of the folks that we've been talking about. We made grants of, I think it was like 300000 to each. And I think that was a total of like $6 million to the ecosystem just in Chicago. Another three or $4 million to small co-ops, small community land trusts, small... CIVs and housing co-ops, those that may be just thinking about forming, they were able to get grants, or they're soon able, they just finished applying, they'll be getting grants of like $150,000. So we hope to have 20, at least 20, 25 of those new, you know, ideas. And then the last bucket of capital is going to kind of larger co-op projects. So, you know, it, it might be something that's already established, but really needs some more working capital to get to the next level. So by investing in the ecosystem, and I think there are 20 grants to the ecosystem to build the capacity to to really provide the support that these small kind of pipeline projects need and to help birth and expand these larger pilot projects. That's how the money was organized. And I think it was a very smart Kind of model mm -hmm. to ensure that we are strengthening the various areas and supporting the emergence of new stuff that often gets overlooked, right? We, we tend to fund the things that are already getting funding. It's like, well, how about the, the folks that are sitting in their, you know, their kitchen at the moment thinking like, how are we going to do this? Well, we got 95 applications. That to me is, is huge. 95 applications from pipeline very small entities that want to either form a community land trust, a worker cooperative, a housing co-op, or a CIV, or a community investment vehicle. 95. We can only fund 25, but 95. And, and to me, that that's amazing. There's at least 95 um, entities out there that, that are thinking about this, that haven't fully started, but need some capital to do so. So, you can fund 25 of those, 95, 
And that says, if my math is right, there's 70 more you couldn't fund. Right. And not all of them kind of meet the criteria, let's say. Okay. But have uh, to. we're still supporting those. All right. The hub, as I said, this hub organization that, that at URC that my colleague Renee Hatcher and I are, are, are kind of trying to hold will be providing support and networking and, create, and facilitating working tables so even those who didn't get grants can still be part of this conversation and help shape you know, the direction of this work going forward. So okay. those 25 are small projects. We funded another 20 ecosystem projects and then another three or four larger projects. Okay. And so when, we, when I'm thinking of future, you had 95 apps. Some didn't meet the criterion, some did, but there's some other people out there that didn't apply and they're thinking, so there's more opportunity. So it's also an opportunity to go back to the city and say, we need another 15 million, you guys. Okay. <laughs> what would you like to leave people with? We only have about a minute and a half left. What would you like to I mean, leave? It's almost, you know, the folks that you that are, that are listening, they already understand, or many of them understand the potential and the possibility, right? You tune in to everything co-op because you recognize uh, the importance of this work. Um, but I, I guess I, I like to tell folks to follow those big ideas because Five years ago, we may not have thought this was possible. This meaning this community wealth building initiative right. uh, in Chicago. Five years ago, we were just knocking on the doors of the city and nobody was answering the doors until uh, the right set of actors were there. Five years ago, folks were, had been doing the work in community and communities across the country, but it's finally congealing in a way in which, you know, we're, we're seeing these regional clusters and so I leave people with this, this the, hopefully, you know, can animate people to, to get involved, to do the work, to connect to others, right? Cooperation, cooperatives are all about cooperation. Cooperation means it's a, so, a set of social relationships that we're advocating for. And so if you're not starting a cooperative, you can surely kind of support the, the cooperative movement in, in one way or another. And so I really encourage folks to be in community with people <laughs> and doing this work. Thank you, Dr. Satin. Thank you, Stacy. Everybody out there, be in community, live cooperatively, and we'll see you next Thursday. News Talk 1450 WOLAM, where information is power.